The following is a live podcast recorded at the Disruptor Series Live. We are coming to you live today from the 3% Conference, Navy Pier, Chicago, Illinois, the eighth annual, and we are broadcasting the Disruptor Series podcast here. My name is Doug Melville, and I am joined by the one and only Ronnie Dickerson Stewart. Ladies and gentlemen, give it up. In the opening keynote today, they brought out the other winners. They had a huge procession. It was really exciting. Yes. And they go, ladies and gentlemen, the winner of the 2019 (laughs) Nancy Hill Award, Ronnie Dickerson Stewart. And everybody was like, rah. If if that's how you remember it. Yeah. But it was absolutely fantastic. (laughs) We'll use, we'll let you take creative liberty there. That's exactly. Um, But it was a beautiful moment. Um, The Nancy Hill Award is. it's an award named after Nancy Hill, who's the former CEO of the Four A's, mm-hmm. who is a phenomenal individual and advocate for all people and women. And Kat Gordon, who is the founder of the Three Percent Movement and the Three Percent Conference, um, created the award to acknowledge the work that Nancy's done for others as well as her personally. And Got so it. each year, she identifies an individual that serves as an advocate for women, mm-hmm. um, and just recognizes that individual for their work and their impact and Mm. the award is you know you don't submit and say i'm an awesome person and this is what i've done it's essentially individuals throughout their board the community even different social networks who serve up nominees for the award every year and say this is the person who i would recommend and this is what they have done Mm -hmm. or this is how they've made an impact in my life and um, to be honest, to be completely transparent, uh, me receiving it really caught me off guard. Mm-hmm. And so it caught me off guard for people to stop and say, you've been an advocate to me personally or wow. to women in general. And frankly, like when I talk about myself, people are like, what do you do? I was like, well, I spend 200% of my time doing work that advances and advocates individuals. And I like to see them grow in their career. And that's why career advancement and inclusion is, you know, what I do. I've been mm-hmm. in the fortunate position to be able to marry work with purpose and passion. And it's taken a lot of years to get to that point, to be able to do them all together and to do them in a purposeful way in a place mm-hmm. that, you know, wants to see that work done. And so the award was really, when I heard about it, I was like, wow, that's an acknowledgement of the things that, you know, I do, you know, I just connect with people. For something that you would have submitted for and wrote a a nomination for, you know, I probably would have been a lot more prepared. But this I've been sitting with for a few weeks now since I heard about it and just being very grateful. That's great. When it was, you know, shared, there were people who I've worked with, you know, eight, nine, ten years ago were like, yes, there was the one time that X, Y, and Z happened. Mm. And I'm like, oh, wow, that really, you know, that point, that was an impactful point for you. And I, and I just am very grateful to be able to have had those experiences. That's really exciting. And it is an honor when you're appointed an award or elected or nominated versus applying. Right. And there's nothing there's wrong with that, right? Of yeah. it because someone has been watching you work exactly. and seeing your accomplishments. Yep. Back when I was coming up and I was an intern, I was Quincy Jones' last intern. Oh. And he would always say to me that 85% of every decision that directly affects your life, you're not in the room to have a say. Absolutely. That's facts. That's and the facts. And he would say that it's what you put out that people observe is 85% of your career. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I, so this is yes. a perfect example of, of many that have happened in your career, but I'm sure where people were watching you and being inspired and feeling something after 
yes. working underneath you or with you. So I just did a podcast. Um, there's an episode and it's mm-hmm. called Don't Believe the Quit Your Job Hype. Mm-hmm. It's about the idea that you don't have to show up to these places every day where you can pick up dollars, coins, cents, and understanding for how to live, work, make money, mm-hmm. and feel bad about yourself. When you hit the bump in the road, the resolution or solution is not to run out and start your own thing because everyone is not built that way. Don't believe the hype around in order to achieve success, fulfill your purpose, that you have to quit your job. Now, there are more than one ways to achieve you know, that success, that vision, whatever. And you don't just have to work a job. You can be a side hustler. You can do whatever you want to do. Yeah. But don't make people f- let you feel, make you feel bad or worse, right. make no, you this leave is coins real. on the table This is making you feel like you have to quit people your job. People make people feel bad. Really about bad it. about that. Yeah. And so that's so as an, a person who works a full, full-time job, yeah, no, right? I'm, and also started the career consultancy, it wasn't because I'm like, I have to be an owner. That's a part of it. Yes, that's a great thing. But what I wanted to do, the purpose of my me doing that was to be able to serve more outside of my doors in a way that was not in conflict with that, but was helping to elevate people around me who were seeking me for those services anyway. Exactly. That's really what it is. Mm-hmm. And I can always go back to my hierarchy to determine where mm-hmm. the friction is. For, so that's kind of... For, but that's important because yeah. I think friction creates disruption. Oh, yes. You know, yes. and that's... That's the most important thing, you know, because if you don't have that friction and that conflict, you can't come up with a different thought. Exactly, And that's really, you know, looking at the word diversity or different or disruption, it's all a alternative point of view based on the facts. Yes, it's a pathway to innovation. It's a pathway to difference. It's being able to have that friction, Mm -hmm. one, having an understanding of what may be driving it and being Mm -hmm. willing and having removing yourself from it and just wanting to get to ideas and Mm -hmm. impact and saying, okay, let's dig into it. That's where you get to the innovation spectrum. Like essentially not wanting to feel the friction in a negative way, that's where we get to our disruption point. Like that's where the magic happens. Mm -hmm. And that's, I mean, isn't that why we're all here, right? Yeah. I am Erin Riley, president of Shiat Day Los Angeles, and I am here with Denise Hewitt, who is founder and CEO of Scripted. But let's start just with sort of the basics uh, of uh, talking to us a little bit about what Scripted mm-hmm. is and and how you came to be the founder um, of, of yeah. that. Yeah. So Scripted, in its earliest incarnation, um, was a script database where we connect the dots more quickly between writers and buyers. So think IMDb for unproduced screenplays, where writers have profiles and bios. You can search by genre tag, keyword, um, and then people can search for the content, find it, read it, engage with it, and then option it off the platform. I mean, what I found interesting here, there was a whole other layer to what you talked about this morning, which was around funding. Mm-hmm. And and certainly um, the, the lack of funding in female entrepreneurs is not new news, but you shared some statistics um, that I found really kind of shocking. And you shared your own experience and mm-hmm. that of some of your friends and, and others like you um, that I think uh, really framed for me how much further we really need to go. And, and you yourself at one point said, this is the first time in my career I've ever felt like I've hit a glass ceiling. And so I'd love for you to talk yeah. um, with our listeners who didn't have a chance to hear you speak a little bit about the, the sort of crux of, of your message from today. Yeah. So this talk came out of sort of my fundraising journey. We had gone through an accelerator in Silicon Valley last year, you know, I'd gotten some funding, built this new product. And this product um, to me was was a, a, a scalable product. With a, It was a large innovation. And we've reinvented the screenplay, which all of you will get to see next year. Um, and it was something that I was really proud of. And I was like, oh, this is, this is the thing I've been building towards. And I went on this fundraising journey and I met with 300 investors over seven months and we got 299 no's. 
And for me, that was really hard because I was like, okay, I'm well networked. That's the privilege that I have is I'm someone who has the ability to meet with 300 investors, which is not most entrepreneurs' journey. But then the other side of it is, well, it didn't matter that I was well-networked and told I was a good entrepreneur and I had a product that they believed in, but they didn't have enough proof points. And so it really got to a point where there was, at the time, I see a bunch of my other friends getting funded and they're in sort of female-leaning categories. And then I see my male peers getting funded um, pre-product, no proof points. And you're like, well, what is going on here? And I was like, okay, I really need to start understanding what's happening. So I just started doing a lot of research around venture capital and the state of venture capital and realized that, you know, Hollywood and venture capital are very similar, actually, very similar industries. And it was very like, it felt to me like, oh, like how unfair that this thing I'm trying to solve for in this business is something that I can't sort of get ahead of over here. And so I was like, I need to start sharing my journey because I think a lot of female entrepreneurs, everyone has a hard time funding. Men, women, everybody. It, but it's especially harder. I always say to like my guy friends, like, well, it's really hard to raise money. And I go, yeah, it's really hard. But imagine if 98% of the capital is available to you, 2% is available to me. So it's hard for you. Imagine what that's like when you don't even have the same amount of like opportunity. And so I think that was very like, for a lot of my guy friends, was very jarring because they were like, you're right, I've met with 300 investors. Or I've met with 200 investors and we're just getting our funding. And like, can you imagine that like, that's just because you, it's not available to you. So it doesn't matter how many people you meet with. Um, and I think I just really got to a point where I was like, I don't really care about the optics anymore because a lot of female entrepreneurs are like, well, I don't want to say that I'm having a hard time or I don't want to be honest about this journey. And I was like, I think we need to because I think that we're not telling the real story, which is that we're missing out on A, profits, but really innovation. And really, I think that, you know, what we're seeing in Silicon Valley now is we're not building products for all people. We're not building companies that are sustainable or profitable or legacy companies. We're building quick IPO turnaround so people can make a buck. And I'm interested in building sustainable legacy companies. But also when we build our products, we think about what does our team look like? Does it look like the world? What does the product look like? Does it look like the world? How do we build technology for all people? Because I'm really over sort of like the blind spots in technology. And I don't think they're that hard to overcome. But I think that we've created a culture where it's really easy to just do the path of least resistance, which is like, oh, my friend is available. And so now I have a whole white male engineering team. And I'm like, no. We have to do better. I mean, one of the things that that you touched on was the uh, pattern recognition that exists yep. in in funding, um, and it made me think a little bit about the pattern recognition that exists in advertising and marketing, and you know how the I think the same applies, which is when you follow the formula, the outcomes are the same, mm -hmm. um, or how true innovation only comes through taking risks, but pattern recognition really is taking out a lot of the risk and therefore the, right. the innovation. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that I took away from your speech this morning was really not exclusive to women or people of color. Yeah. It was in general, uh, the, the systems, whether it's entertainment or advertising, or in, in, in the case that you were speaking about VC, this pattern recognition, this risk aversion is so limiting our ability to have breakthrough innovations. And it is just disproportionately uh, being applied to to women and people of color because they don't fit the pattern. pattern yep. um, and and so I thought that was really interesting. And and I think one of your statistics was actually that the rate of investment, the percentage of investment in women is going down. It's going down. It's actually we are actually going backwards. Yeah. Um, and 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 when we were talking before the show, you were sharing this idea that um, actually because there's an increase in funding when there's a male and a female, mm -hmm. uh, you know, this might actually allow people to kind of pat themselves on the back. Um, and you had some anecdotes about, you know, females who had 
pursued funding and didn't get it until they got a male partner. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that for us? Yeah. Um, I always say, like, you know, we're not really at equality if we're not apples to apples. So if female only so low, like two women are getting funded at the same rate as two men, then we're apples to apples, right? But women and men, like, obviously I'm about inclusion. So I believe that um, – Gender inclusive teams obviously will lead to more profitability, but we should be able. You shouldn't have to have necessarily a male partner or a female partner to stay, still raise money because there's all male teams that raise it all the time. It's the illusion of progress, is what I say, and I think that when a lot of times in like modern discourse, when you talk about things a lot or you get a lot of articles about things, we have the idea that we've made progress. And it's the same thing across the same thing in Hollywood. I don't know if you saw like on the sequel of Crazy Rich Asians, the female writer was offered a very low salary in comparison to her her male partner. And he'd offered to like split his salary with her. And she's like, no, that's not the point. But there's no history of like an Asian woman making a blockbuster in like the history of Hollywood. So they didn't know how to pay her because they didn't have the historical data. And the reality is my thing is like, you know, I think that we live in a very fear-based world right now in general. But, you know, what I see sort of on the just most granular level is that like a corporation, especially in entertainment, it's like, well, if I greenlight that movie and it flops, then I lose my job. And then I can't support my family and I can't pay my mortgage and all these sort of things. And I think that that's because we've created work cultures that don't allow for people to feel safe to make mistakes. And I think part of the, my goal is like, how can we have enough intelligence merge with content to make better bets? And yes, you're going to make some mistakes, but also you're going to have a lot of huge wins. And so that's sort of like our philosophy at Scripted Period is like, how do we create like pair intelligence with content? But I think we need to do that in venture capital as well. And so I think across and probably advertising, right? Probably every industry. But I think that's really the root of the problem is that we're coming from a lens of scarcity, a lens of fear versus a lens of abundance. And like, I don't lose anything by lifting up the thousands of writers on my platform. In fact, it's made my life better. And I've seen, read amazing stories that have made me a better person. I've seen amazing movies be made and I've seen people's dreams lift out, right? And I think that's really where we need to get back to is this idea that like actually when I support other people, I net more because the pie doesn't get smaller, it actually gets bigger. And that's the thing with venture capital with female founders. It's like if you, they were saying that if women start businesses, like our GDP goes up to like $3 trillion. And so it's like we, as we expand, there's more money to be made. It doesn't mean that we're taking away from anybody else's sort of paycheck. Mm -hmm. So as you think about your journey, yeah. have there been uh, male mentors, male allies um, that have impacted you uh, along the way? Yeah, there's a lot of them. Our, our lead investor now actually has made it very clear. He was like, I see myself in you and I want to see you succeed. And I, you know, I believe in like your piece of your of the business because my two other partners, but he has made it very clear he's an ally for me, which was incredible. And my business partner now, I mean, like the two of them, they're great. They're great male allies. And I feel fiercely supported. And so that's a blessing. Um, and there's a lot of men in my life that have like early, early supporters of my company. Um, a lot of millennial men that showed up for me in a big way at the beginning that believed in what we were building and our message and myself and gave me opportunities. I fully think that like when men understand the value of women, there I have like some of the most rich, beautiful male friendships in my life. And I say this all the time where I'm like, if this is like, we can net so much because I learned so much from them and I always joke, it's like my model for my romantic partnership in my life. But I'm like, if I have this in male friendship, what's going to happen in my love life? Um, because they're just, they're such deep, rich, beautiful people. And I think when you sort of take away everything and you're able just to connect as like two people talking, what you can net is really incredible. And I think that for me, the answer is always in, in inclusion. It's not either or, it's a yes and. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that we have to do a better job of 
making, I think, also part of it is it's making men feel safe and being a part of the solution. I mean, switching gears a little bit, I mean, it doesn't take uh, spending much time with you to get sort of an aura of confidence. And I'm curious how you've managed to keep self-doubt uh, at bay. Because, you know, if you met with 300, you know, venture capitalists and you got 299 no's, that would have been enough to shut a lot of people down. And so, you know, how have you been able to sort of maybe even have self-doubt, but not let it stop you? Yeah. I mean, when we all have self-doubt, I think that like we all have various forms of imposter syndrome. But I think that for me, I started learning that like external validation doesn't necessarily mean something unless it means something, right? And so a lot of my friends that were, you know, whatever, raising tons of money and in the press, like they weren't necessarily happy, right? So it's like, what does this really mean at the core of it? What do I know? I know that I have predicted a lot of the twists and turns of what's happened in the entertainment industry. So on some level, I've been forecasting what's happening. So I'm, I'm not completely off base. So that was like number one. Number two, I have an incredible community of sage women in my life that really gave me a lot of wisdom and support when things got hard. I have amazing family. And really, at the end of the day, I tell everyone, I'm like, get a therapist. My therapist was integral in a lot of levels for when things got really hard to have support and have someone, you know, because I'm also a very like introspective person. And so there was a lot of questioning. There was multiple times where I was like, do I give up or do I keep going? Do I give up? Do I keep going? Am I wasting my time? Am I wasting? And you get to a point where you realize you're not because for me, I kept digging in. I was like, well, is there anything else I can see myself doing? And I tell entrepreneurs all the time, I'm like, if you can see yourself doing something else, go do it. I knew for me there was nothing else that was going to give me the joy that my company gives me despite all the pain. And so for me, it was worth to keep going because I would be more miserable in a job that wasn't this than to stay on the journey that was grueling. And outside of having a good therapist, yes. what other advice would you give uh, to folks who are wanting to pursue you know, something where the odds feel stacked against them? I think you have to know it's your calling and your purpose. I think a lot of entrepreneurship is very romanticized right now. And I think that most people are not meant to entrepreneur, be entrepreneurs. And personally, like, I would not wish this on most people. Like, It is hard. It's really hard. And there's no guarantees in the journey. And so I think you have to be obsessed. And I think a lot of people want to start something, then they quit after a year. And it's like nothing nets in a year. Just period. Nothing that's near. Like every the tenure, like in the making story, is real. Um, there's a couple people that get lucky breaks along the way, and it works out. But for the most part, you know, you're. I'm saying, like, you know, I've been working, I guess at this point, almost like 14 years professionally, and it's like it's taken this long to get to a place where I feel like, oh, I'm finally building something. But it's been years of like, you know, high powered jobs and whatever in different companies, and so I think it's just you have to know that in your core, it's what you were meant to do, and it's your purpose. Because then, no matter what, no matter how hard it is, like you will keep going. Like I know this entrepreneur. This, he's been at his business 17 years and he's like had issues with funding and he's got like a diagnostic test for Lyme disease. And I was like 17 years here. I am complaining about four and a half. And so I think that like at the core, he's built this thing. Biotech's a very different business. It's very hard. But I was like, but that's his purpose. And so if that's, and for me, I was like, oh, this is comforting. I was like, oh, thank God we met. I feel a lot <laughs> yeah. better now. Yeah. <laughs> We are here with Jill Abbott, Head of Consumer and Brand Engagement for Gatorade, uh, broadcasting from the 3% Conference. Hello, Jill. Hi, Erin. I think there was a statistic that 
said that many of the female leaders in various industries had their roots in sports. Um, so I was curious, did you play sports or do lots of people on your team play sports? And has that shaped sort of your management or leadership style? Lots of people at Gatorade play sports, um, did play sports and currently play sports. I was one of them. I was a gymnast growing up. And I think that what you learn in those formative years through sport absolutely carries through no matter whether that's in life, whether in business, or whether in your active self as an adult. And as I look across my team, you really start to see an embracing of that team dynamic, an embracing of coaching as a leadership style, an embracing of uh, tackling hard challenges, resilience, all of those things that the grit and determination of being an athlete in your youth teaches you. And it's one of the elements that I think is the special sauce to the culture of Gatorade, in that we have this shared ethos on how we want to interact with each other, how we want to bring forward the work, the respect that we have for one another. And we have a, a bit of a cultural value of ours that sweat together, win together. So we firmly believe not only that we are here to fuel athletic performance, but that all of the things that we learned in sport growing up can help us do so in a more effective way as a team. Diversity in general is something that we talk about as a leadership team quite a bit. Diversity when it comes to gender, ethnicity, race, but also diversity of thought and ensuring that we have different folks joining the table that have had different experiences, different backgrounds and a different perspective. I think the danger is when you come in everyone having the exact same cookie cutter experience, you don't know what your blind spots are and you're not able to address them. From a Gatorade perspective, I can tell you that that's something that we're actively seeking, ensuring that the next seat that we add to the table is bringing some lens on different, unique, how can we be better by changing up who's at the table and including a different type of background experience uh, or gender and ethnicity or race, depending on where we're at right now. We might be focusing on, you know, we might need person with a different background, we might need a person of a different gender, but it's always something that we talk about. And I think the danger of not talking about it is then you aren't aware of where your outages are. Mm -hmm. I think in my background, having mentors, having coaches, and having allies has been fundamental to getting to the place that I'm at now, but also helping navigate some of the decisions that you need to make in order to decide what next role to take, what challenge to take on, and also getting some really honest feedback and having people that you know are in your corner in order to help build your career forward. And for me, the mentorship and, and the allies come from all different sides. So not just you know women on behalf of women, incredibly important. One of my mentors, Morgan Flatley, who was a, a leader or CMO of Gatorade and has now moved into a leadership position at McDonald's, is one of the women that I look up to the most. And she's such a huge advocate for all talent. But there's been so many men in my career as well who have been advocates for me and who've been mentors and who've been allies. I think my first year when I was on the Gatorade brand, there was a gentleman, his name was Phil that was in the, one of the executive seats on Gatorade. And he pulled me aside one day and gave me some coaching on how to find my voice. He had noticed that in a meeting, a couple of meetings, uh, he clearly saw that I had something to say and I wasn't able to break through the conversation. I didn't have the confidence to break through. I hadn't worked it out in my head enough. And I have so much respect for the fact that he took me aside in a safe space and said, I believe in you. I'm going to help you find your voice. And he did that over the course of the next year, kept coaching, kept being in my corner, kept helping me find a way to develop that voice and to build that confidence. So if, as women, if we only do that for women, then we're not doing our jobs. And as women, if women are only doing it for us, it's not gonna be enough. Yeah. 
I am sitting down with the one and only Michael Munoz, diversity business partner at Google. Ladies and gentlemen, a disruptor. Let's give him a round of applause. Michael, yeah. Now, what do you see are the biggest variances across the DNI conversation, across maybe some macro generalities across those industries? But are there any things that stand out to you just in kind of thinking back? Are vertical differences within how the subject matter is absorbed between those three different industries? Yes, for sure. I mean, there's. I think there's a couple different things. The the first one is uh, the necessity to do it. Mm. Like for life insurance, and I was in health insurance for a little while, and the landscape w- was changing. So you had to understand that your users, uh, your you know, the, your subscribers, whatever that you, you're calling, uh, you're calling them, look different. And in order to, to stay relevant, you have to connect with them on a different level. Mm. With tech and with the ESPN, um, the impetus for we were it's the worldwide leader in sports, and we're Google, right? So um, I don't think that the the impetus is as high unless we want it to. So it, it's coming from a different place, I think, than uh, the life insurance and health insurance world uh, that I spent time in. That's quite interesting. And now, do you think that the DNI conversation, where do you see it? Do you feel like it's just getting started? Do you feel there's a fatigue? Where are your kind of sensories leading you? I think there's a fatigue, uh, mostly. I think that uh, we've given people... Now a whole generation has grown up with diversity in their schools and things like that. And so we've equipped them with language to talk around diversity without actually getting things done. Right. And so I think Mm. that people are like, they can say all the, they can say all the niceties and they know where to step and where the, all the minefields around diversity and how to step around them. But I don't see a whole lot of progress. So I I think that we need to figure out a way to re-energize the conversation. Um, At Google, we talk a lot more about equity than we do about diversity. Taking a look at systems that are in place uh, that need to be interrupted, for lack of a better term, um, and that are maintaining the status quo. So while everyone else has gotten better about about talking or talking the language of diversity, things haven't changed. And so what we're trying to do is take a step back and how do we interrupt the systems that are keeping kind of this this system in place. Mm. Now, are you finding more and more systems that need to be interrupted or do you feel that you have a handle on which ones they are? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's been a, there's been several. One of the one of the ones for me is um, when I first stepped into the role, one of the things that we looked at in our job descriptions were people who had general market um, and had worked on global campaigns. One of the things that I believe and we saw bear out was um, a lot of our black and Latinx marketers, um, when they went to work in agencies or at other companies, were asked to work on multicultural marketing campaigns so it, or, or segment marketing campaigns. So that automatically eliminated them from being able to kind of be quote unquote qualified for the, these general market roles. And you see it time and again, mm. your best black marketers are working on kind of the black campaigns or, you know, the, the your best Latinx are looking at the Hispanic markets and things like that. So for us, you know, it was how do you eliminate some of that? How do we understand that if, you know, you're marketing to a segment of the population and you're killing it um, with your campaigns, you should be coming to work for us. And I am sitting down with the one and only disruptor, Jez Chung. Ladies and gentlemen, give a round of applause. Yeah! So, Jess, earlier this year, uh, you had a disruptive moment where you were named the head of DNI 
uh, for Anomaly. So that is a big, huge congratulations because that was your first role formally full-time in diversity and inclusion. I've never been able to show up to work as anything less than me because I... I'm not, I'm not capable of that because then I would just be miserable and I don't want to go to work miserable. So I thought, all right, well, I'm, I'm a dancer. I'm a, you know, I'm a poet. I'm all these things. So let me yeah, just incorporate stylist, that. You're yeah. a lighting director. <laughs> you know, there's all kinds. Um, and you have to work on the camera crew, you yeah. know, producer. Yeah. You just got to do it. It's yeah. really, yeah, it's amazing. And that's the new generation of creativity. Like you said, I think it's this, I, you know, this notion of, yeah, you don't have to be a creative in the traditional standards of what advertising has defined as a creative. Sure. And then, um, and I guess, you know, when I uh, I was in the creative department, I worked there for a couple of years. Then I moved to uh, New York. Uh, I was just, it was time for a change. So I moved to New York and was a copywriter. And I was working on YouTube and Sonos and Sally Hansen and a couple other brands. And I thought, I'm living the dream, right? Like, this is what I wanted. I wanted to be a creative. Creative, advertising creative, and I'm in New York, like the the mecca of advertising. Wow, I was miserable. Mm. I was I wow. was going into a I spiraled into deep depressive episodes. I went to therapy for the first time. I got officially diagnosed with major depressive disorder, general anxiety disorder, and attention deficit disorder, which I've had my whole life. Like mm-hmm. that was just getting the official diagnosis. But all of um, New York was really triggering. Moving to the city and everything. Mm. So then I thought, okay, well. I'm miserable, like my mental health is the worst it's ever been, and why is it that this is what I wanted and I'm still not happy? So I had to get really real with myself. I almost left the industry completely, which is a pattern in a lot of people of color when they reach about uh, three to five years, I notice. And so I thought, oh, a lot of my friends are leaving and they're going freelance, like let me try to do that, thinking that that was the answer thinking that that would make me happy. But there were people there that believed in me and they said, well, if this isn't what you want, what do you want? And they opened that conversation. And I said, Mm. okay, well, let me get back to you. So I went home. I did a lot of journaling, uh, a lot of researching. I read this book called um, Designing Your Life. I think these two Stanford professors who teach a course about designing your life wrote it. And then I wrote out my dream role. I thought, all right, all right, Jez, if you could do anything in the world, what would it be? Like anything that combines all of your, combines your project management skills, combines your creative skills, combines your writing skills, combines your um, whatever, you know, whatever it is, the skills that I have. So then I wrote it down and then I started designing a deck around what that would look like, what the responsibilities would be, what the objectives would be, how it would be measured. um, What is the precedent? What are some other similar roles at different companies? You know, what is the business need that this is addressed? Because that's the advice I got. I called up a couple people um, who were in, you know, similar roles who had done uh, something similar. And um, they had told me, you know, align it with the business needs. Because at the end of the day, this is a business decision. And so I thought, okay, all right. Let me do that. So I built a deck. Um, I presented it to the global head of talent and then and one of the recruiters. And so I presented it to them and then uh, they were on board and they presented it to the CEO, Frankie Rodriguez. Frankie presented it to the board and then it happened. <laughs> it, it happened and I think I was um, – it was really surreal because before that happened, I was so – 
unhappy that I thought I was hopeless. I had no hope left. I thought there's no place for me in this industry anymore. I don't fit. There's, uh, I felt like I was retrofitting myself into a role that wasn't designed for me. And I just am not, I am more than a copywriter. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and I'm just really, really, really grateful that the leadership understands the value of inclusion, understands the value of a role that is focused on inclusion, because although, yes, inclusion is in the DNA of a lot of companies, but that doesn't mean that there's someone, you know, holding them accountable all the time. That doesn't mean it's going to be practiced every day. So uh, that's what I kind of pitched as this role that um, also, I wanted to approach it from a creative lens because I feel like that's something that I don't see as much as I want to see in the inclusion space. A lot of people approach it from like data and strategy, but what about it's it's create it's a creative role too. You're creating something new. You have to respond to the culture. You have to respond to what, um, and also it has to be compelling enough for people to want to be interested. Um, I, I want to touch also before I ask what's next. What do you think could be done to keep people of color, mm-hmm. women, or underrepresented mm. groups not wanting to leave mm. after three to five years? Because what we're seeing is people are looking at their roles at these agencies almost like college careers. Like, I could stay there for four years. Yeah. You know, and after four years, I'm going to yeah. And it happens. There's some, yeah, burnout. something. What, what, what do you think? I think it's twofold because I really think um, – I don't know if I came up with this myself or if I heard it somewhere, but I've been thinking a lot about this idea of splitting the burden, splitting the burden between, um, you know, majority, whoever the majority is, whether that be white, male, whatever, um, straight, cis, and then, you know, the marginalized, the people of color, the queer people, et cetera, anyone who feels like they don't belong in, in an organization. It's on one side of the equation to educate themselves because the majority can't expect the marginalized to always educate them. That's a lot of emotional labor. So educate and then empower. But also it's also on on us as people of color, as queer identifying people, as you know, as people in marginalized groups to figure out what works for us, the conditions for our productivity, the conditions for our creativity, what we need to feel supported, and then ask for that. And then move somewhere if you're not getting that, which Mm -hmm. is what what I had to do. And um, now I am in a place where I do feel supported. And I know that not everyone has that, but I feel like I've gotten to this point because I've actively made sure that I'm showing up in the places where I can get more educated, where I can find more tools and the resources, because we can only do as best as we have the information and experience that we have. So as I've gained more experience, as I've been in more spaces where I'm getting more tools and resources and knowledge, then I'm able to apply that to my work. So yeah, the challenges are still there, but I can, I'm can i better equipped to handle them. Mm. Because this industry is tough for everyone, and then, of course, there's layers. If, you know, woman, person of color, woman of color, then if you're... Because I identify as a queer woman of color with, dis, with mental health disabilities. So I'm like, you know, in all these categories where I feel mm. it as a woman, I feel it as a Korean-American woman, I feel it as a queer person, I feel it as a uh, person with mental health disabilities. So my conditions at, in the workplace aren't... Um, or I'm not able to succeed in the same conditions that other people may may be able to succeed in in the workplace. So I think that it's it's also understanding what you want and what your end goal is because I think a lot of people just want to give up and I think like are you burning out or are you giving up? Are you just giving up and leaving the industry because you think 
there is no place for me and I refuse to, you know, adapt. So I'm just going to leave, which, you know, if you want to do that and build your own table and build your own thing, that's great too. But that doesn't always work for everyone. And I've seen it happen where a lot of uh, people go freelance and they're like, oh man, I thought this was going to be easier, but now there's so many other challenges. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just really, really, really getting to know yourself. I think that's the advice that I'd give. Get to know yourself really well so you understand what it is that you want and what it is that you don't want, mm -hmm. uh, what it is that you need and what it is that um, hurts you so that so that you can attract the, the companies or the people or whatever, the collaborators that can help you be become the best version of you mm. in whatever industry you want to be in. That's so poignant. I'm here with Michelle Proda, Global Board Member, Talent at Forsman and Bowdoin Forest, New York. Hello. Hi, Erin. Thanks for having me. We are here at the 3% Conference, um, and we're talking to you today because you are a 3% certified agency. And I'm interested why that was important for F&B. Um, and a little bit about how that's impacted the agency. Awesome. Thank you. Yes, we are so excited. Yesterday, uh, yesterday it was announced that we're the first global agency to ever be certified. It means a lot to the organization. Um, and we received certification 18 months ago in New York. So it's just building on the strong base that we have formed. So 3% is significant to us because it puts a name to the work that we've been doing in this space. They measure us on female leadership, equal advancement opportunities for men and women, equal creative opportunities for men and women. They assess our equality within the culture, and they look at all of our work globally as well. So is there a respectful depiction of women in client work and agency promotions? So it's become increasingly important to new talent that's coming in globally, as well as uh, to new clients. And was there ever a discussion at the leadership level of whether this was going to be more than the agency was willing to take on, that this would add you know, steps or, or um, requirements that would be difficult for the agency to reach. And so while you would pursue, you know, loosely gender equity, the commitment of 3% certification was too much? Or was everyone really kind of rallied around this idea from the beginning? We were thrilled from the beginning. We have always felt like we're on to something special. We have a really collaborative working style. And um, female leaders outnumber men leaders, even in creative around the globe. And um, with the collaborative working style, with female leadership, we were up for the challenge and really excited. So when Forsman went global last year, 3% was my first phone call to say, give us a shot. That is amazing. We'd really like to put a name to what we have going on, and we'd, we'd love to celebrate that and understand. We find there's real value in learning about ourselves from external experts. So while we are super plugged into the culture and our ways of working and leadership, we learned so much through this process. And we knew that from going through it 18 months ago, just in New York. Mm -hmm. And to be able to share that around the network was really special. So not only as an agency globally, mm -hmm. are we certified every single individual office is specifically certified as well, really raising to those benchmarks. And for those uh, listening who might be thinking, okay, this is something we want to take on, but we're intimidated by the process. 
How did you find that, you know, was 3% supportive? Uh, you know, was it arduous or was it, um, you know, manageable? Uh, and ultimately, was it worth it? It was most definitely worth it. And with the right culture, it's not a heavy lift. The 3% team is super kind, very inclusive, and they become an extension mm. of the agency team. So it takes about three months. And there are three different ways that uh, they participate. So uh, there's a data piece where they review policies, processes, communications, demographic data, pay equity data about your organization, which um, is report driven. Then the second piece is an anonymous survey that goes out to every single employee. And that was then translated to all of our different languages around the globe. And the third piece is in-person interviews. So the 3% team flew to Sweden and they uh, flew to Canada and then did Google Hangouts with um, people in all of the other offices, Shanghai, Singapore, and New York, and they interviewed over 50 people. So um, if you're to put all of that together in terms of hours, it's a lot of work, but it never felt like too much to take on because it's spaced out over time. And with there being three different facets, in my opinion, it really mitigates bias in the process because it's a collective effort, not something that's just run by leadership or the HR team. So we're, we're sort of beginning day two of the conference. Um, and I'm curious, what has struck you most from day one? Anything that has really stood out uh, to you or that, you know, I mean, obviously you came into this highly educated on this topic. Um, so what uh, maybe was something new or fresh or surprising uh, that you've heard so far? In, in being here. The tone of the conference um, and the participants listening, there's this mutuality of openness here that you can feel and that people talk about. So this is something that has been building over the conference history mm. over the last eight years, and it gets better and better every year. So audience members are admitting what they don't know, and they're asking the really uncomfortable questions, and the panel leaders are prepared and the speakers are prepared to answer those things because everyone's going, we're in this together. And it doesn't feel competitive. And it feels like a really nice time that our community and industry comes together to support one another. So in terms of your journey, um, you know, who have been mentors, men and women who've sort of helped you along the way? And what role has mentorship played for you? I've had several. And in the moment, maybe they didn't feel like an official mentor. Like maybe we didn't define it at the moment. And historically, maybe they were my bosses. I've actually just entered into my first formal mutual mentorship where we came together and said, huh, we have a lot to learn from one another. Let's use that. Historically, it's been bosses. And um, if I could just give a couple of shout outs, of course, um, my first boss in advertising, Michelle Della Ventura, who has since now covered both of my maternity leaves, taught me to just be bulletproof, to read a room, to always be prepared. Um, Maria Giannutos, who used to be an outside recruiter, placed me in my first department head job. And um, when she was moving me from one agency to another and I told her how much I was making, she goes, no way. You need to be earning, like, I think she said something like $50,000 more. And I was like, oh my, wow, that's just how it works, right? So I've taken that on as a real responsibility to say we're not volunteers. And I coach women a lot around ask for it. It's okay. We're not volunteers. Feel like you're being paid well for what you're doing. Sophie Kelly, who's an exec at Diageo right now, she was my first feminist CEO leader that I've ever had who really taught me how to tie talent and people strategy to the business and client work. 
which was a great lesson. And, you know, currently at F&B, our global chairperson, Anna, our global CEO, Guy, and the local CEO in New York, Mike Densmore, I'm, I'm learning from them all the time. Like it's, it's such a, a mutual respect for learning through this progression of the industry and people and culture. Um, and I'm with the one and only Lindsay Stein from Campaign US. You just want me to blush. Yes. I came on and we broke a story the first week because I was like, I wanted to, I want us to be like, we're here and we're going to break stories too. So I love like the culture pieces and diversity and features and I'm um, digging deep into topics, but I also really like to break stories. Yeah. Now, how hard is it to break stories with so many corporations and advertising and so much kind of commitment to secrecy? Is it, is it pretty hard to, to break a story or are they kind of out there and you just have to know where to look? It's a, that depends. I mean, um, you could break a story in like 10 minutes if you have, if you have sources you trust or it could yeah. take like Ollie and I sometimes will take like a month to try to break something or two months. Um, and it comes down for me, the trusting your sources and I have never screwed over a source. Yeah. Um, and I will always protect them and I feel like they know that. So that's kind of how it works for me. Um, if it's off the record, I, I like need at least three really top sources. I like like more like five. Oh, wow. Um, like C-suite or people who are like inside yeah. and I don't like like hearsay like oh I heard this through somebody else it's like that's too you know degrees of separation that's too far I want oh, it to be it. like direct knowledge yeah but yeah I mean it's uh it's hard but uh it's what makes it fun yeah do you actually uh a little on the spot here but do you have a dream story that you'd love to <laughs> either write or break or hmm. is there something out there that's Behind the boogeyman and and the paywall in your mind. <laughs> this isn't like a dream story because I, that's like I, I don't know. I probably have a dream story, but um, this is just one I've always wanted to do, and yeah. it's like impossible. I really want to sit in on a pitch process from beginning to end, and like get to see the agency's pitch and sit in with procurement, hear those conversations, oh, and be like wow. a fly on the wall. And I got close a couple times, and like then of course the clients like no we don't want you to know proprietary information the agencies kind of freak out too because they don't want like you know journalists to see yeah. them pitching or like they're like secret sauce um but that would be so fun and how <laughs> would, would you do that in a series or as a feature uh probably like one big feature but like keep it like a log of it over yeah like, those, that'd like, be an interesting months. story oh, i would love that All right, well, we're here at the 3% Conference here in Chicago, and uh, one of the great things about uh, doing our pop-up Disruptor Series podcast is you just meet interesting people. And uh, I met uh, the gentleman before me uh, last night, he told me a story, and it was fantastic. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, everyone in between, uh, please welcome Vincent Bragg, who is the founder and CEO of Con Creates. How you guys doing? <laughs> So good. Thank to you have for having you. me. Yeah. yeah, so good to have you on the show. So you know you're changing something here too. You're you're trying to change the perception of what an incarcerated person is. I mean, maybe talk a little bit about that because um, I'm just looking here. There was a something you said on stage um, just before you came to us. Uh, this 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 is this is the quote from you. Uh, we think of people with criminal history as bad people, but maybe they just did a bad thing. Mm -hmm. So maybe you can unpack that a little bit. Uh. Well, I, I, you know, I like telling stories, right? So 
when I first like got indicted, and I think I forgot to mention I went to prison, and that's how I started the company. Like, so if you look at my mission, my mission statement is to change the stigma of how society views people with criminal history, mm -hmm. but also how people with criminal history view themselves, right? So if people with criminal histories think, hey, all I'm ever going to be is a drug dealer, all I'm ever going to be is a bank robber or whatever, then they're kind of self-perpetuating mm -hmm. that, that lifestyle and that image. But being able to provide this opportunity where it's like, no, no, you can go on a strategy. I know a guy's day rate's like five grand a day for strategy. You know what I mean? Like, you don't have to rob banks at five grand a day. And it's and it's and it's better than drugs. And it's and be and better than drug money. And it's a little easier than robbing a bank. Absolutely. And then I think you know, there's 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 a way. To, if someone knows banks, then maybe there's a bank client that might be interested. You know, there might be ways to transfer some of the knowledge. And right? we're thinking about it, right? <laughs> we're definitely thinking about it. It's like everybody wants this, you know, mind-blowing creativity, but they're all looking for it in the same places. I found a, a different place to look, and these guys are fucking dope, right? They're, they're also dope, right? It's not even just, hey, they're formerly incarcerated or they're incarcerated. No, they, they actually come up with really dope shit. Well, listen, I think everybody uh, wants disruption, but, uh, you know, it, it takes some, you know, some guts to make it happen. And I think that's what uh, you're presenting. The United States of America versus Vincent Edward Bragg Jr. You could tell me no a thousand times. You, that's, there's no other sentence more powerful than that to me. Well, Vincent, I, I think you're doing something truly disruptive and uh, I think is a... Uh... As a, you know, as an agency, we 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 try to bring disruption. So, uh, yeah. very good. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Disruptor Series podcast, brought to you by TBWA Shite Day New York. Craving more disruption? Visit us at tbwashiteday.ny.com.